Welcome to today's show, everybody. It's going to be a good one. We are diving deep into the world of CRISPR gene editing. That is a technology that has both life-saving as well as terrifying consequences in the hands of the wrong people. Uh, in the second half, we're also going to look at Elon Musk's new uh, Neuralink platform, which I find fascinating. It's essentially an interface between human brains and computers, and Marquise is going to explain it all. We're going to break it down as usual, so find a comfy chair, get the coffee rocking, and welcome to Quantum Ladder Podcast. Welcome back to Quantum Ladder Podcast. My name is Louis Borges. Joining me today, my good friend and co-host, Mr. Marquise Williams. What's up, Louis? How you doing, man? I'm doing great, man. You ready to go? We got a couple of deep topics today. Yeah, this is going to be awesome. Again, we we these topics blend so perfectly together between the two of us. So I really I'm really excited about these two topics today. Yeah, and as we were doing our research over the last week and a bit, I remember messaging you saying, "Man." This stuff has like the technology to change the world for the good, <laughs> but it's also the most terrifying thing I think I've ever researched. And you're like, yeah, that's kind of the benchmark for what we're doing here, right? Like <laughs> Every single topic that we could possibly talk about, especially when it comes to like these cutting edge technologies that are not fully developed or in my case with what actually yours too, they're not all fully FDA approved um, for human trials for some, some of these cases. They all have these like world changing implications, but to your point, they also have some dangers that are also world changing, but not for the better. <laughs> so, Absolutely. Yeah. So. And we'll, we'll find out that with the world of CRISPR, there are those that are going against the grain that sort of believe that your genome and your genetics are uniquely yours and you should have dominion over that. Right. Uh, but there are ethical implications if everybody just starts messing around with genes and we're going to explain. So for those of you who aren't familiar with CRISPR, and it's probably most of you, it's a fairly recent technology, I would say within the last 10 years. It was actually uh, invented by accident uh, by a lady named Dr. Jennifer Doudna from UCLA Berkeley. Essentially, they were growing things in bacteria and they found this protein-based enzyme that when you matched it with a piece of RNA, it could literally target DNA at any specific point and cut it cleanly. So the implications for that, people think, well, what's the big deal? Well, you can remove genes, you can add genes, you could cure diseases, but you could also enhance you know, people, better, mus better muscles, better vision, better cognition, all kinds of cyborg type stuff. So I made a little quick video just to sort of break down what is CRISPR uh, and explain a little more uh, in depth before we get into it. So let's take a look. In a world where science meets the very essence of life, a revolutionary technology emerges. CRISPR gene editing. 
CRISPR, an acronym that echoes through the corridors of scientific discovery, stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. I know that's a mouthful, but what does it truly mean for our future? At its core, CRISPR is like molecular scissors, allowing us to cut and replace specific genes with remarkable precision. But can we truly control the genetic forces we unleash? Imagine a world where genetic disorders like cystic fibrosis, sickle cell anemia, and Huntington's disease are no longer a sentence of suffering, but a challenge to be overcome. What would such a world look like, and at what cost? CRISPR offers hope to millions, a chance for a brighter future where disease is no longer the ruler of our fate. But what happens to our society when we begin to redefine what it means to be normal? With that great power comes great responsibility. The ethical concerns surrounding CRISPR are profound, casting a shadow even on our brightest aspirations. The line between healing and altering human nature blurs, raising questions about the boundaries of genetic modification. Who decides what's right and how do we prevent misuse? Should we play the role of genetic designers? Who decides which genes are undesirable? These are dilemmas that demand our careful consideration. As we journey into this new frontier, let's remember the potential for good that CRISPR does hold, but how we ensure that this power remains in the hands of those who will use it wisely is another question. Together we can use CRISPR to eradicate genetic diseases, alleviate suffering, and make our world a healthier, more compassionate place. But what safeguards must be in place to protect the vulnerable and prevent unintended consequences? CRISPR is not just about rewriting genetic code. It's about rewriting the narrative of human suffering. It's about ensuring every child has a chance to chase their dreams. Nature has been our teacher, showing us how genes evolve and adapt. Now, with CRISPR, we have the chance to be nature's partners in progress. But are we ready for that responsibility? In this quest to harness the power of CRISPR, let our compass be guided by science, tempered by ethics, driven by that enduring spirit of humanity. But how will we navigate the unshuttered territory of our own genetic destiny? CRISPR will shape our future, one gene at a time. So there oh, no. it is, the good, bad, and the ugly. Hey, my first little voiceover. That was, awesome. that was, that was awesome. I got to say, I want to try to say this this acronym again, the CRISPR acronym, because you said it so perfectly. Let me, I'm going to try it. So, so clustered, clustered regularly, inter interspaced, short palindromic, palindromic repeats. Yeah. Why? Why? <laughs> well, because it's medicine and nothing can be simple. So we will break it down. We'll show exactly what it is. So I've got a slide here. Let's take a look. So what is CRISPR gene editing? So using Cas9, which is the enzyme I mentioned, and I have a diagram to explain that, uh, cuts DNA, Genes can then be removed, added, or combined. They can be used to modify any gene in any organism. That is a powerful statement. Modify any gene in any or just about, as far as the, the studies are showing. Uh, can be used to treat or even cure diseases. Could also cause unforeseen issues within nature. And there are major ethical ramifications, as we saw, because, again, who gets to decide what is normal? What genes are we eradicating? And what does this do to other other species, you know, essentially. So in terms of benefits, it could cure diseases like cystic fibrosis, sickle cell anemia, gene deficient blindness, early onset Alzheimer's, malaria, cancer, muscular dystrophy, even things like HIV and herpes 
could be eradicated with uh, technology like this. Uh, organ transplants that are not rejected. Essentially, you could grow your own kidney and it would never be rejected. You'd never have to take meds. Uh, enhanced benefit in medicinal plants. You could modify certain plants to produce more of a substance, thereby bringing the cost of manufacture down or just the potency up. There's a many, many different benefits from that. And it is cheaper to produce than most available pharmaceuticals. And we're going to get into the cost of some of these pharmaceuticals. It's unbelievable what they can get away with, you know? And um, so CRISPR, basically... What this is here, this is a piece of DNA. The red blob is the Cas9. It's that enzyme that sort of surrounds the, the DNA itself. So they put a guide RNA in there, which is how they target what gene they're trying to clip. So the guide RNA with the CRISPR blob, so to speak, will cut the DNA at a specific point. That's our middle bar there with the gap. And then you go one of two ways. You can go bottom left, i.e. you delete a gene. If somebody has an issue that that gene is causing, it could be removed or if somebody's deficient and that's causing the disease, they can then insert a gene into that place. And uh, one um, illness that they're using this type of uh, therapy for is called SMA. It's spinal muscular atrophy. So essentially, this is what somebody with SMA, poor guy. I mean, it's basically a death sentence. It's a degenerative disease. You will not get better from it. You're paralyzed, but you have all your feeling. So your brain is perfect. If somebody were to run their finger across your leg, uh, you would feel it, but you are unable to move, essentially locked. Wow. And I mean, you could cure this with a pill that mom could take when the baby was in its, you know, very first stages of development that could sort of prevent this. And in fact, they did some studies on spinal muscular atrophy. The biggest keynotes are at the bottom here. So in 95, uh, the genes are identified. Now, the National Institute of Health also funded um, um, studies to try to find, you know, if there could be a, a cure or some type of a clinical, you know, trial or anything. And six drugs were then put into clinical development. Now, the drugs themselves is what I have an issue with, just in specific to this condition and a few others. Here is what we're looking at. So let's start with the first one, Spinraza. So Spinraza looks like this, tiny little vial. It is a one dose uh, initial thought. The cost for that little vial, oh $750,000 for one dose and $350,000 annually. Now I saw an interview with somebody and here's another poor kid that has this condition. And this gentleman was 24 years old who actually survived, which is a crazy long amount of time for somebody with this issue. And he needs to basically be put in a sling and a crane to move every day. But he still has all his mental faculties. And his parents have been fighting like crazy to get some type of medical coverage for this or something. And he basically, you know, having gone through this for years, and it's a million dollars, right? You take the first dose plus the follow-ups, yeah. it's at least a million plus. And he just basically mumbled the words like, you mean to tell me that this quality of life is worth a million dollars, you know, and the CEOs of these companies basically use the ethical and say, well, what's it worth to save somebody's life? You know, take a look at this drug here, Luxturna. That's one of the next ones on our list. Luxturna, third down, is a gene replacement therapy for blindness. It's $850,000, grand for this little tiny bottle. And the, the CEO of the company that makes it basically said, well, what does it cost to give your, your child eyesight? You know, what's that worth to you? Well, it's worth everything. It's worth my house, my savings, my car. But does it really need to come down to that? You know, the number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States is medical bills. So should you have to lose everything 
to save a life and especially the life of a child. You know, some of these other ones, second down here, Zolgensma treats the same thing, SMA. It is $2 million for a single treatment. $2 million. Basically pay or die is what the company is saying when they make it that, you know, unreachable. And again, if we go back to that thing, the National Institute of Health is giving them money. They are paying for the studies to develop these drugs. So you take taxpayer money, create a drug, and then say, yeah, it's a million dollars. And half the insurance companies aren't covering that. And the ones that do, well, then everybody's benefits have to go up because you have drugs on the market that are, it's not illegal to have a $2 million drug. And it should be, especially if it has these type of abilities. So part of the drive towards CRISPR is that you could develop the same therapy for a couple thousand dollars and you wouldn't be stuck with just one company because the way these companies work is you can't patent a plant. And in fact, this Luxterna drug right here works on very, very basic science. Definitely not 800K worth of goods in development, okay? But you can't patent a plant. So what do you do? You create a synthetic version in a lab. You patent that. Now nobody can touch it. And nobody can touch the original plant because you've got a patent on that same compound. So unless that plant had many other uses or different chemicals you could derive from it, mm. you've effectively taken that medicine off of the market. You know, and if this company found that, hey, it has the ability to help cure blindness, maybe it has many other benefits, too. But if the research stopped there, that's the end of it for humankind of ever researching that sort of plant or compound any further. It gets convoluted, you know. Uh, and the last one here is a Glybera. It treats a very rare disease. It's called familial lipoprotein lipase deficiency. It's a million dollars a treatment. And uh, I just, you know, when you see things like that and you see the ability that this technology has to help, there's got to be something that that comes down. You know, something's got to break. Um, in terms of actual uses, though, aside from humans and gene therapy, because the ethics are not quite accepted. In North America, you are allowed to administer a gene if it comes from a donor or if it's naturally occurring somehow and that person is deficient. What you're not allowed to do is edit their DNA specifically. So right. you can supplement, you can use gene therapy, but countries like China, Russia, the Ukraine, they don't have those same boundaries. So one of two things happen. Either we open the doors a little bit to this type of thing very carefully, or we don't, and it just goes underground. And people with money and the sort of elite rich, they'll just get their kids edited in Europe or Asia, and it'll become even more elusive, and then we won't have the benefits from it. Um, some clinical trials are doing right now this dealing with malaria and mosquitoes. So they're exploring a way to use CRISPR-Cas9 to modify mosquito genomes to render them resistant to the malaria parasite. Uh, Lyme disease and ticks, as we all know, ticks uh, carry that. So using gene editing techniques, uh, it, which to, sort of to target those ticks, which transmit Lyme disease, they can modify the genes and make them less susceptible to pathogens, thereby reducing the transmission and also rat populations. There's been a few islands. I think Nantucket Island is one. Um, where they thought it'd be a good idea because it's an island, because if it went wrong, it wouldn't really spread. But, you know, either manipulating the rat's sort of behavior or rendering them infertile through some type of genetic, um, you know, modification of some sort. So the way these things basically work, I'll give you a diagram on that. So it looks complicated, but it's not. On the left, you have a little green ball. You've taken DNA that you want to inject. So that's the gene. They put it in a virus because the virus has a way of, of sort of penetrating that cell. It's also known as a vector. So you have a virus with the genes you want to introduce. 
this big white eyeball looking thing is effectively the cell. They package it in a vesicle. It's basically a bubble, something to protect it on its journey to the nucleus of the cell. The virus with the gene goes all the way through the cell, hits the nucleus, and now that cell starts making proteins as per normal. So it's a very easy fix, very quick fix. Uh, and in fact, some of these drugs like this one here, it's meant to treat a type of blindness that they literally uh, can inject under the retinas, one shot deal, and your your vision will improve because now you're producing the correct genes again. So it's fast, it's easy, but again, it could go the other way and there could be like problems, you know, like for example, here's some dangers. So all of these things manipulate what is known as the germline. So the germline is the master copy of DNA. Like if I change my DNA and environment does, right? Radiation, smoking, anything that you kind of encounter in your life will change your DNA. But that right. doesn't necessarily get passed to your offspring. But when you manipulate the germline, we're talking ova, sperm, those manipulations will stay in the genetics of that creature and every subsequent copy. So you're not just affecting the person or this generation, you're affecting every generation to come. And we don't know, like, we don't know what the, the bad or the downside of that is because we've never done it before, right? So manipulating the germline is the master copy. It affects evolution with unknown consequences. Lab experiments could escape into the wild. Here's a problem. You know, you genetically modify frogs or rats, they break out and now you have an experiment that you cannot control and it will just continue to replicate right. forever and ever and ever. And with unknown consequences. Uh, also using viruses as vectors could cause unknown side effects, especially with HIV patients, their immune system being compromised already. There could be some side effects with that. And then you have what's known as gene drives. So gene drives force traits through every single generation without control. So the difference between a gene therapy and a gene drive. Gene therapy is we're introducing something that is missing. Gene drive is a trait that we want to introduce to change that species. But it's also not just the gene. It's the gene and the CRISPR instructions with the gene. So when the animal mates, the, the editing happens automatically in the babies. So it's like it has its own program built into the animal to always do that same edit forever. And we don't know what happens if that goes wrong. And we just, again, we don't know the full implications of what this will do. And uh, I know, scary a little bit, right? <laughs> yeah, I was. Uh, my first thought is like, there's a series, a book series that I've read like three times, judge me, called Zombie Fallout. And in the very beginning of that book series is, a, is a, called Zombie Fallout Zero, which tells you the backstory of how this virus began. And essentially it sounds like this the scientists were working on some kind of gene editing um or i should say gene what would you what did you call it when they're directing the gene the genes to gene drive gene drive yeah uh, they were doing something i guess would be akin to that uh they were trying to create super soldiers and so they play they 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 gave these soldiers a syringe full of this gene editing or gene drive uh type of material and then they in, they were to inject it when they were on the battlefield and so they did as a test. And the, that's where patient zero, so to speak, happened. Half the, half the crew, almost all of them ended up uh, losing their lives. But a couple of them survived. And essentially, that's where the zombie... And again, this is ridiculous. But you got to think of the, the idea of a spread of any kind of virus and the implications of what it could do. The problem was that in their genetics, there was something unique about their genetics that, that changed the virus or the, the, uh, the, um, yeah. 
through the virus uh, gene like, or whatever. The, again, I don't know the science behind it exactly, but through that virus, which they use to, you know, change the genes in somebody, it, it mutated. And yeah. as it mutated, every generation that it mutated changed the, 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 the zombie types. It was phenomenal, but all, but to bring it to more a, a real life example would be a docu series called Unnatural Selection, yeah. where they talk about biohacking and uh, CRISPR being used to cure diseases and things like that. And yeah, there are potential risks, of course, but I think that when you think about these kinds of things, weighing them together is important. But really, what are the benefits? You just mentioned all of them. They could yeah. change everything. They could eliminate so many different ailments that we have as a civilization. Um, and I and again, I think that's the potential is is for some people i think it outweighs the the risk yeah and it's sort of where you draw the line and i have an example here so if you could give somebody again an injection to cure blindness or right. to get rid of the need for eyeglasses we would probably all agree that that's a good thing but right. now what if i have good vision but i want to upgrade my vision to better right. than 2020 and better than yours it's an enhancement now a cosmetic thing an ego thing it's right. not a necessity for life so that's sort of where the line blurs. Like, well, it's okay for you to see. Well, then why can't I see better? Right? Yeah. And people can make arguments on either side. And it's kind of hard to uh, to explain. And you mentioned biohacking. We're going to get into that in a bit. But the tests that are happening, uh, countries that are allowed to do that, what they've been doing is kind of as a, sh a sign of bravado, but also as a way to prove that what they're doing is legit. They're doing genetic testing on animals. Um not most of the time that's it's humane like they're not like putting acid and stuff on them they're just trying <laughs> to see if they can introduce a trait and so they thought well what is the most obvious way to do something that nobody can refute you know if you just introduce some random gene and then was like well here was the dna before and here it is after okay but what they've done is they take bioluminescence out of fish like this jellyfish deep sea creatures and they will genetically engineer them into the final product so this is not made up. These are rats that are genetically altered so that their ears, bodies, you know, fish, whatever, will glow under luminescence. Uh, here's an example of normal rats and three gene-edited rats with that same genetic makeup. And here's what it looks like in the embryo phase. Right from the beginning, this bioluminescence is built in. And uh, I saw um, it, this kind of started with cloning when some guy in Korea cloned beagles, like we know Dolly the sheep was the first clone ever. Yeah, yeah. A guy in Korea cloned beagles and he made their nails uh, highlighter yellow glow in the dark fluorescent because that's that was something that's so unnatural. There's no refuting that something had to happen to make this thing legit. And uh, even this is a University of Missouri test. That pig does not have paint on his nose. That is legitimate fluorescence in its feet and in its nose. So it glows in the dark under magnification. So again, that's just an example. Uh, you know, you could modify any of your genes. And in fact, your DNA is comprised of only four letters, A, uh, C, G, and T. You've got three billion of them in your DNA sequence. And to put that into perspective, if you had a sheet of paper with just those four letters, A, C, G, T, written on the front and on the back, there would be a million of those pages <laughs> just for your yeah. genome. Removing one letter out of that million pages has enough uh, potential risk that it could create something like this. This is not somebody who is missing many genes. They are missing a few genes. So, I mean, the, the difference between getting it right and wrong is massive. You know, look at dogs and wolves. 
less than right. 1% difference between a teacup chihuahua and a 200 pound gray wolf, right? Well, less than 1%. And look at the difference that that right. makes, you know? Massive. Um, yeah. So that's a couple examples of bioluminescence. Now you mentioned biohacking. This is sort of the definition of biohacking. Uh, is a do-it-yourself citizen science merging body modifications with technology. The motivations of biohackers include cybernetic exploration, personal data acquisition, and advocating for privacy rights and open source medicine. The emergence of a biohacking community has influenced discussions of cultural values, medical ethics, safety, and consent in transhumanist technology. And one of the uh, main proponents of that technology is a guy named Josiah Zayner. He was uh, famous for going online and actually injecting CRISPR gene editing into himself. Um, yeah, like, I forget what it was. It was some muscle thing, but he basically is part of a group of people that believe that we own our genome. Nobody can tell us what we can do. If you're doing it on yourself, fine. But, yeah. and, but then, again, this gets a little bit crazy because then you get into the world of biohackers, and this is what we're talking about. So everything from implanting magnets in your fingers that guy's ear has a computer in it. Uh, if you look at number C, that's a little chip that gets implanted into the hand of D. And it also glows. And then some people go to the next level and they implant actual devices in their hands. You know, you could fist bump and transfer uh, information or, you know, yeah. whatever with people. So, you know, this guy looks like he's got an iPhone and sewed into his arm. So it gets a little bit, a little bit nuts. And uh, one of the companies, you mentioned that um, Unnatural Selection documentary, one of the companies they feature was Ascendance. And uh, it was a guy uh, who created this company and was doing testing. People had volunteered themselves to sort of inject and see if uh, a gene called N6 could lower the viral load of somebody with HIV. And uh, Ascendance Biomedical was the name of the company. And uh, it was controversial because, again, he was pushing these sort of lab rat people to like right do it, do it, do it. But essentially you're encouraging people to change their genes. You know, it, there's ethical implications and it's almost like you're practicing medicine without a doctor, you know, even though he's saying it's not fit for human consumption, this is experimental, they're doing it on their own. It was kind of encouraging it in the wrong way. And uh, subsequently, in a couple of years later, uh, the guy who started this company, um, Aaron Trawick, uh, was actually found dead in uh, Washington. Now there was also ketamine in his system wasn't necessarily from biohacking, um, but that essentially that's what, uh, that's oh what, you know, it gets deeper. Maybe somebody pushed this guy off the deep end because he was getting ready to come up with a technology that for a couple thousand dollars would replace a million dollar vaccine. So a couple of video clips on this. Um, and one of them is regards to China doing some tests on pigs. And the other would be in terms of almost like the food chain and uh, fish and the possibilities of that, um, you know, growing protein to feed people and like the benefits of that. So we'll start with uh, what this looks like in China. Created the first glow in the dark pig. They did this by injecting a fluorescent protein from jellyfish DNA into pig embryos through a process called transgenesis. The scientists wanted to show how genetic material can be transferred from one animal to an entirely different animal with the hopes of creating cheaper and more effective medications. Fortunately, none of the pigs were harmed as a result of this experiment. However, this wasn't the first time humans turned animals into glow sticks. Earlier that same year, Turkish scientists managed to create a fluorescent bunny rabbit using the same technique, which could explain why. So yeah, kind of scary, right? And we have limitations on that stuff in North America, but other countries don't. 
And you can go down the road of cyborgs, you know, soldiers that feel no pain, no fear, soldiers that would bleed less, clot faster, heal faster. I mean, the list of things is uh, impossible. But uh, in terms of like practical applications, we mentioned rats and mosquitoes and malaria and that type of thing. But what about something that would benefit and help feed people around the world? So check this out. Extremely important thing happening in seafood right now that's going to change the industry. And it's so important that people understand what this is and how it works. I'm talking about gene editing, genetically modified fish. Now, genetically modified fish is not really a new thing. It's actually been around for decades thanks to Aquabounty. But in recent years with the evolution of CRISPR as a technology we can actually use in biology, that is something that's being applied to fish. And using CRISPR on fish will allow scientists to do anything, pretty much. So since we've had genetically modified fish for a while now, why is it now just becoming so big? And I mean in research institutions, this is not being applied commercially yet. Before CRISPR, gene editing was extremely difficult and not that precise. With the discovery of CRISPR-Cas9, however, things have changed. So let's say we take the entire salmon genome, right? And we use CRISPR-Cas9 engineered specifically to help us with this task. There are still some limitations, but for the most part, we can edit really any part we want. This means upregulating or downregulating existing genes or adding in new ones, even taking them out. And unlike previous gene editing techniques, this can be extremely precise. This means that the fear of unwanted consequences when you do all this gene editing, it's hundreds if not thousands of times less than it was before CRISPR. You can imagine that this is just astronomical for anything in biology, but we're gonna stick with fish. There are labs around the world right now working on editing all different kinds of fish from catfish to tilapia, salmon, even one lab working on pufferfish. A lot of research right now is on how they can control the sex and fertility of fish. This would help aquaculture operations not only have full control over what happens to fish if they get out in the wild, but it would help them increase their operations by being able to choose the sex of the fish. Beyond this, they can look at the immune system of fish, look at the genes behind that, and see if they can improve it. AKA disease prevention, which is a huge cost in aquaculture. Labs are also looking at how they can increase the growth rate of fish by turning on and off genes without it affecting anything else, and this is totally possible. And probably one of the coolest aspects, and a reminder this is totally just in research, not commercial or anything yet, is adding tracers to fish genomes. This might not sound crazy, but if you think of the application, you could trace any fillet of fish anywhere with 100% accuracy exactly through the supply chain all the way to where it was born. You wanna talk about corporate transparency, there you go. There's a ton more going on with CRISPR on fish in the labs right now, and I'll keep you updated as stuff comes out. I can't. Louis, I can't. I can't hear you. I'm not sure if it's me or you. I had my mic mited. I was like, oh, sorry. <laughs> I, I've been sick for a week, so I was hacking my brains out just 10 seconds ago, and I didn't want you guys to hear it. My, my. That's hard, man. That's, I thought it was me. I was like, oh man, what did I do wrong? No, no. no. <laughs> yeah, I'm just glad I haven't screwed up the picture so far yet. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm running on Advil and caffeine at this point, but I'm doing all right. But yes, yeah, you can see in that video there that there's real yeah. practical applications, right? You could figure out where your food is coming from. You could eliminate certain disease. You could, you know, increase size, energy, mineral retention, all that stuff. You could grow healthier, stronger fish that are traceable. And, you know, there wouldn't be that sort of black market. It would all be fair and ethical, right? Because of that. But we don't know what happens when we do that. Again, what if it goes wrong? What if... Right they you know inherit some other issue as a result of this you know you're essentially playing god 
And some people say, well, isn't that kind of what evolution and medicine are anyways? You know, we have the ability to cure diseases now that we couldn't. Even simple stuff like my daughter, when she was in my, my wife's womb, never spun upside down. So if that was 200 years ago, our daughter would have born, been born and died at birth. She would have choked, right? So with a simple procedure like a cesarean section, we now have a life that you wouldn't have hundreds of years ago. A lot of people look at this as being the same thing. We now know more. So why don't you use it? You know, like, but again, I understand kind of both sides of the coin and doing yeah. this research. I found myself going back and forth. You know, you listen to the biohackers and you're like, yeah, they're right. And then you listen to the people that are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is what could go all wrong. And many other countries that don't have that same ethical backbone, let's say, aren't going to stop where we might. Right. So it's a difficult thing to quantify. A few other things I do want to bring to your attention, one being space travel. Um, there are theories that if we were to go to Mars with the intense radiation and life there, it's a one way trip. Our DNA would would change. And to prevent immediate or very short lived lives there, we would have to modify potentially our DNA to be able to survive in that type of a hostile environment. Uh, also, DARPA is looking at doing research on bioweaponry. There are people that, uh, you know, are submitting papers and studies for DARPA to look at. Now, DARPA is, I forget what the acronym stands for, but it's defense. Defense and like cool robotics and stuff that can be used for weapons. And they run a contest every year. But I mean, some of the implications could be like GMO insects. You could have genetically modified insects that either have technology in them or not, but they could they could mm -hmm. transmit pathogens just like mosquitoes do. Uh, genetically modified viruses that you could spray over entire populations. That's the stuff out of sci-fi movies. You don't know what's going to happen with that. Yeah. Like yeah. you start in, and there's a lot of conspiracy that COVID was kind of that in the first place, right? And who knows? I don't want to get into COVID because it's very polarizing. <laughs> yeah. But you know that is where the potential could be. You could do that intentionally and cause major economic and world disruptions, political unrest and, and all the other, the rest of that goes along with that. And then to the far extreme, you know, the cyborgs, like we saw earlier, people that are now mechanically enhancing themselves. Um, I saw a picture of a guy with a camera built into his eye. You know, it's like uh, you could see the surface of the moon with your vision, that type of yeah, stuff. Wow. So, the last thing I want to bring up is fertility. So in the Ukraine, they're doing some uh, work right now with what's called three parent babies. Have you heard of this before? I have not heard of this. No. So no. we all know about in vitro fertilization, people that can conceive in like a Petri dish. But right. for whatever reason, that that embryo has a hard time embedding in the uterus and constant miscarriages happen. So there is a mitochondrial deficiency that exists in some women. So they'll usually take a bunch of eggs, look at them all, pick the ones that have the best chances, and then do the in vitro on those best embryos. But if a woman is missing this mitochondria in every single one of her uh, ova, it will 100% lead to a genetic disease with the baby. So what they do is they have a mother and a father. Mother is missing a gene. They have a gene donor from another lady who's donating just that mitochondrial component to now make the mother's ovum complete. Then they do the in vitro. So in essence, mom was missing a gene. She gets the gene. She's good to have a normal, healthy baby. But there were three people involved with the creation of that life. Because right. without that additional donor genetic material, that baby wouldn't happen. So and I have I have heard of that. I didn't I didn't remember the, the specifics of the terminology, but I have heard of that before. Yeah. Um, at least in theory. Yeah. Yeah.
And again, too, the implications of fertility, we're talking designer babies. You could, yeah. if this was wide open, you could go to the doctor and say, I want a six foot tall, blonde hair, blue eyed baby, <laughs> really muscular, above average intellect. And it would be genetically possible to do that. And there's actually a clinic that's doing similar kind of within the guidelines of the law. So they're not engineering the baby, but what they're doing is they're taking that same sample of ovum from the, uh, the woman and they're saying, you know, we want to have a boy. So out of these seven embryos, you have three that have over 90% chance of being male and you wanted blue eyes. One of those has an 80% chance of being blue. So what they're not, they're not modifying nature, but they're just taking nature and giving you a choice and saying out of all these eggs, this is how they would look when we do the in vitro. Do you have a preference? And some people say there's nothing wrong with that since there is no sort of interference. Other people say that that's still not correct because you're playing the word, you know, the role of God essentially. And you're making decisions on what life is going to come rather than what nature would have given you anyways. So. That's basically what I got on uh, gene therapy without taking up uh, the entire episode. I want everybody to uh, to know that it is something that has great potential. And you should know about this because this is not new and breaking and coming in five years. They discovered this in 2013. This is 10 years old already. Yeah. It is in yeah. full swing. It's happening everywhere. And we either need to get on board with it to some extent or it's just going to happen in other places. And now we're playing catch up. But I mean, the lack of that type of work in North America right now is leading to the ability for pharma companies to charge a million dollars to save a three-year-old's eyesight or to just give somebody, you know, that um, has SMA the, the ability to swallow so they're not choking on their drool, you know, like it just to restore a basic dignity and quality of life. And that's a million dollars. I think we have a big problem. And especially since the taxpayers are paying for a lot of these studies, yeah. you know, somebody has a right to say something and uh, to make some noise. So what do you think? Scary? I have. Uh, well, I mean, it, of course, it's scary. I think all of these technologies that we talk about in these, uh, you know, cutting edge, even if they're medically um, you know, directed, they, they all seem to be come with and they carry some really big implications when it comes to dangers to all of us like you're, you're talking about you mentioned earlier that you could change one uh generation or if you will one person's genes um and then give them some kind of a benefit or fix whatever problem they may have or you can change an entire lineage right. uh, genetically of people there there's a huge danger in that because you mentioned this before in a conversation we had previously where you said that you know you don't know what kinds of epigenetic changes in, an, in, in, let's say, four generations from now could radically change the nature of that gene editing from the from the original gene editing, whatever the whatever the purpose would could be. There could be something down the line genetically that could change it entirely, the outcome yeah. entirely. And so that's there is a lot of dangers to that to that um, technology. I just I don't know. Again, I, I think that it, if you were to close that system to not make it so that it you know, transfers from one from one generation to the next. I think that would be safer. I think that the idea of changing it through several generations is it's not very smart because we don't know what the implications are for future generations to have some kind of genetic issues or again anomalies that could change the original purpose entirely. Yeah. So that's the only thing that that's the only thing that I can think of in terms of Jane. The, the biggest thing I think of in terms of danger, but in terms of benefit. Again, anybody could change anything about themselves that they want to. And you mentioned the ethical implications of, well, what if somebody needs it and they charge 
a million dollars for that for that you know process you also said that it could be made cheaper a couple thousand dollars so i think that that would be an easy fix but i think it all boils down to one thing that i'm gonna it's gonna be repetitive you're gonna hear this a lot from me especially there needs to be a redesign of society of how we are as a civilization how we what we we value our value system or else all of these technologies are going to continue down the capitalistic you know direction of the rich can can afford these things and everyone else will have to just hope and wish that one day it'll be cheap enough for the rest of us that's right yeah the only ones allowed to do this type of work is big pharma and uh, they can essentially set whatever price they want but i mean again ethically what who decides what genes we're keeping and what genes we're eradicating right you could eliminate down syndrome but right. a person with down syndrome is a person right so would that would that baby maybe not survive with the gene editing to correct the, the Down syndrome rather than mm. if you just left it as is, there's a high probability of living and having a, a decently yeah. long life, right? Who gets to decide what is normal? You know, this is almost like going back to eugenics from the Nazi regime, right? Yeah. Oh man, have, uh, <laughs> But we've done this with animals, yeah. right? We breed dogs, selective breeding. If, uh, you know, to introduce a major change into a, a species like a dog takes right. about 10 generations. That's about 150 years. With CRISPR gene editing, you can do it in one or two generations. So, you know, because it doesn't need that time for nature to evolve and evolve, but maybe that slow and steady way that nature has is a good thing. It prevents very quick things from overtaking and then getting out of control. Yeah. Now, some of the advocates for doing this work with like, you know, rats and mosquitoes, they do say that with a gene drive, they could program in certain things that it would either disappear after a few generations it wouldn't necessarily be like a stuck accelerator pedal with no way to fix it, right? There are ways that they could include instructions. But again, this is all good in computer models and on paper and at lectures. But once you start doing it, you can't turn it back. And I mean, in malaria, with malaria, the one child, I think it's one child a minute in the world dies of malaria. You can erase that tomorrow if you eliminate mosquitoes. But what happens when we literally remove yeah. an entire species from the ecosystem? We don't know. I'm not saying that mosquitoes are necessarily a great food source for something, but they have <laughs> some purpose. And they do. You know, we don't necessarily know what everything's purpose is. And uh, there's there's problems with getting into that stuff. So they're yeah. doing some tests, you know, in New Zealand. Uh, a lot of the birds have evolved to not have flight. They're these sort of prehistoric, walking, peaceful monster birds. Yeah, but yeah. now they have a man-made uh, infestation of rats just from, you know, hundreds of years of uh, colonization. And these rats are attacking and killing these endangered birds. And these birds don't even know that they should be scared of these rats because genetically they don't have that fear. There's no fight or flight. They just kind of sit there and get killed. And so a lot of the local people, uh, the Maori people, they're, they're very like... They want to preserve nature. They want a solution, but they're very leery about playing with this kind of stuff. And scientists have said, hey, we could genetically engineer these rats. They don't reproduce or they just stop looking at those birds as a food source. And even though it's an island and it's contained, there's still a lot of backlash of, you know, you mess with Mother Nature. You don't know what the you know potential consequences can be. I think that's a. I think in, in that case, I don't know all the details, but I, I feel like there are probably factors that go into why it turned out that way, for example, maybe negligence or a lack of, um, if you will, a think tank approach to this. They, type yeah, of they've phenomenon. had the think tank. They, they did it. They gave, you know, the scientists gave all their presentations. The people went back and forth. Initial vote was we're not going to do it. And then after a few more years of decline and seeing the same issues persist, they agreed to put it back on the table and let's look at 
some variation of that. Same thing with Nantucket Island. You, yeah. know, you have these problems that we've introduced. Even within the dog genome, we've been selectively breeding dogs. And now some genetic traits are our fault, right? Big dogs. Right. I have a great Pyrenees, 120-pound, white, monster-looking thing. I'd be lucky if I get 11 or 12 years out of that dog just because bigger dogs, it's, you know, they have joint issues, heart issues. They have all these genetic problems as a result of us breeding with them, you know, and a lot of little dogs have similar issues too. You look at like French bulldogs, they have yeah. breathing issues, yeah. their eyes, their ears, Hugs. British bulldogs, you know, that's cost a fortune just to maintain these animals. But we have done that, you know, British bulldogs have to be born via C-section because we built the shoulders and the head up so big over so many generations that mothers can't even give natural birth. That's why it's like a four or five thousand dollar dog if you get one from a breeder, because it's we have to literally intervene to even make this thing live and survive. That's the extent to which we've modified dogs. Nobody's screaming from the rooftop saying, don't touch dogs anymore. We just kind of accepted that if you breed a good looking dog and a good looking dog, you're going to get cute puppies. Right. Well, right. this is like that. But in the 21st and 22nd century moving forward, this is the new version of that. All the easy fixes we've done everything moving forward now has these deeper implications and bigger yeah. questions that go along with it. And what you're going to bring up in the second half of the show, it's, it blows my mind. I don't know much about it and I'm glad um, when we do these, just so everyone at home knows Marquise doesn't know any of the pictures or videos I'm going to present. He knows the topic, yeah. but yeah. he's seeing it for the first time and I'll be seeing his material for the first time as well. Yeah. So with that, we'll take a little break. Uh, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about Elon Musk and Neuralink. And I uh, hope you don't scare us too bad with that, Marquis. <laughs> It'll be good. Trust me. I, I, I'm excited to share this with everybody and to talk about the implications. I think it's good. Awesome. Well, everybody, go refill your coffee. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll see you all back here in a few.
We are back with the second half of Quantum Ladder Podcast. Welcome, everybody. And quick note, if any of the clips or video uh, snippets happen to be um, edited or filtered from YouTube, just head over to our Spotify channel, look up Quantum Ladder Podcast. For whatever reason, YouTube, I know on our first episode, they had they took issue with a few clips we ran. So yep. we won't know until we're done recording this and upload it. But in the event anything does get snipped, you can always find the full unedited versions of each of these on Spotify. And uh, thank you to everybody out there listening on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and the Unex Network. Shout out to our friends, Ray's Hobbs and Margie Kay for being amazing people and uh, for taking us on their platform. So second half, here we go, Marquise. The floor is yours, brother. What do you got? Yeah, so Neuralink. And I know a lot of people have probably already heard about it. I've heard about it, of course. I think I think it's pretty much been in the news for months, if not a year, the last year. Um, but it's it's Neuralink is actually a company. It's not just the technology itself, but the company is designed around the technology. So essentially, Neuralink is the company, and it's also um, the technology, which is it's a brain interface, a human brain interface with technology. What they use it for is is simple. It, it, there are a lot of conditions that I that I had to look up, and honestly, there are like hundreds of them. But let's just talk about the most common ones. You talked about earlier CRISPR's um, potential to be able to fix some of these issues. Well, let's talk about how Neuralink can do it. Parkinson's disease, which is, it affects over 10 million people worldwide, um, and they just live with it. It's a tough condition, and you know how Parkinson's disease affects people. I think, was it uh, Muhammad Ali, I believe, had Parkinson's disease? Michael J. Fox. There's a lot of people that are affected um, severely by Parkinson's. Again, 10 million people worldwide that condition could be fixed with Neuralink and giving people a much better quality of life. Epilepsy, which again, you know how epilepsy affects people. Um, there are a lot of things that can trigger epilepsy, but over 50 million people globally are affected by epilepsy and that could be fixed by Neuralink. Hearing loss, spinal cord injuries, depression. I, I, this is one that I really I had a hard time with because I'm like, how in the world could they fix depression? Over 264 million people are affected by depression and Neuralink can fix that. Um, and of course, the really important ones like blindness, stroke recovery, chronic pain, uh, one that's really important for people, most people, including myself, I'm sure you have this issue, memory loss. <laughs> um, Elon Musk did a really interesting presentation where he talked about the potential for being able to store your memories and then recall them and, and create visual representations for you to view in real time with Neuralink. That's phenomenal to me i've heard that they're actually doing that in japan they figured out a way to record dreams and then reconstitute uh, them and you can play them back you know maybe that's with similar technology i'm not sure about the technology in japan but they do do that with Neuralink. and right now they create these representations that seem kind of like a like a very like if you were to take black paint and then throw water on it it would create a representation of what you see visually but strictly through like neuro neurological um you know activity it's not from you seeing it it's the neural neural activity that's being essentially uh it's they're they're back engineering if you will the image from that neural activity right. that's phenomenal to me that's amazing i don't know the firing again, of the neurons that your brain yeah, do at a normal yeah. way and we're going to talk about i mean they're, they're, the the amount of neurons in your brain are ridiculous but we'll talk about that a little bit later and about the implications of that and how they actually put this into people's brains. So I wanted to play the first video to tell, to show people exactly what we're, you know, what's what Neuralink themselves has to see on their YouTube channel. It's a small clip. So let's check that video out. 
what you're seeing there is it looks like the matrix, but that, that's uh, actually the, the, that's a real output of, of neural signals. So that, that's that's not a simulation or a, just a screensaver or something. That those are actual neurons firing. That is one of the, what one of the readouts looks like. And um, here you can see uh, Sake, it's one of our other monkeys, uh, typing on a keyboard. But now he's, it, this is telepathic typing. So to be clear, this is the, the he's, he's not actually using a keyboard. He's moving a, a, the cursor with his mind uh, to the highlighted key. Now, now technically, um, uh, we can't can't actually spell and. Uh, <laughs> so I don't want to oversell this thing, uh, because that's uh, that's the next version. Um, so the, but what's really cool here is is um, Sake the monkey is moving the mouse cursor using just his mind, moving the cursor around to the highlighted key, and then spelling out what we what we want what we want to spell. But um, and then. Uh, so, so this this is uh, something that could be used for, for somebody who's who's say uh, 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 quadriplegic or tetraplegic uh, human. Um, even before we make the the, the spinal cord stuff work, uh, is being able to con uh, control a mouse cursor, control a phone, um, and we we're, we're confident that you, that uh, someone who is has basically no other interface to the outside world would be able to uh, control their phone better than someone who has working hands. Yeah, this is phenomenal. So a couple of things that I wanted to show you guys, if you could pull up the first image that I, you know, I used to create, this is a really cool image, but it pretty much represents that there is a, a lot of different people, experts in different fields, like neuroscience, engineering, of course, robotics, which you, there's a question of whether or not this technology is more about the you know the the evolution of robotics for the most part if you will transhumanist uh, robotics because you're mixing a ro like robot type transhumanistic um, technologies into the brain and of course there are surgeons that are involved with this and there there's a surgeon that is been that has been working with this technology who made some claims about what about the safety issues and how they've mitigated those safety issues over time which again we'll talk about that a little bit more in the when we get into the thick of it uh, for those of you who want to know the, the details about the science and technology behind it. But this stuff is, I mean, it's, they're spending a lot of time on the design, the building, that they're testing it. Um, of course, they're testing it on animals first. In, uh, in 2020, they revealed a pig named Gertrude that had, you know, had a link device in its brain. It was a she, her brain. It showed that she could read the brain activity and predict her movements. Um, and in 2021, they released a video of a monkey named Pager, that monkey that you just saw there. He could play video games using his mind, and he was able to charge the the device by moving near one of the wireless charging uh, devices. If you could pull up image two, you can see this. So the is it monkey... charging through his brain somehow? So the device is in his head, and that that blue light there is the charging device. It's wireless. And if you're asking yourself, the biggest thing, the biggest problem that they had was batteries, the heat of the battery, thermal yeah. issues. If there's if there's something that close to your brain, it can't get too hot, or else it, it could it could cause some damage. Oh yeah, I, my so, phone when I'm doing lots of heavy duty work on that thing, it gets proper hot. If that was in it, my brain, I would know it. 
Yeah, the temperature has to be extremely low. If you when when they view these temperatures under us um, through thermal imaging, the temperatures are actually cooler than the surrounding tissue. It's I don't even know how they do that, but it again, it's phenomenal how they're able to. And again, testing and iterating this technology is how they did it. For the that's that's the truth of it. Um, but it's it's just amazing how engineering and technology when you when you bring these people together to do something amazing, they can do something amazing. So yeah. let's talk about how they how they do this. So these these this technology is essentially it's a chip, but that chip has these threads that are thinner than a human hair that they put into the brain. And these threads pick up signals from neurons and translate them into into language that the machines can understand. So the computer, the, these little threads there, if you could pull up image, um, let's see here, the image with, yeah. This pig is the pig that they used to implant that chip for, for the in 2020. And she had she had no functionality in her leg, her legs, and that chip gave her functionality. It gave her the ability to move her legs because of the chip, which is again, I can't when I first look at this technology and read about it and, and studied it, all I can think of is I still I get how it's done. I just don't understand how it works. Well, ultimately, well, it's if you have like a, a cut in your, let's say your spinal cord or somebody's paralyzed because there was a sever. It's just because the info from the brain cannot reach exactly. these extremities. If exactly. you supplemented that somehow or bypass that break in the link, effectively, you could restore normal neurological function. Yes. And that's so I thought it was all, you know, it's all about your your, your spine. If you, when it comes to these disabilities that have to do with your with a lack of communication between your spine and your brain, your spinal cord issues no it's it's neural activity it's all neural neurological activity and if you can rewire the brain you can you can literally fix all kinds of issues that somebody has including physical disabilities yeah. which i didn't think was possible to do but again this technology shows that it is and they've been they've been doing this for quite a while and now as of about six months ago four to six months ago they're able to move on to human trials uh, so, which we'll talk about that a little bit later. If you guys want to sign up for them, you can. <laughs> There's, I'll bring that up for you guys as well. But yeah, this is a this is a future that, if if you will, I can imagine a future where people are able to fix all of these ailments that we talked about earlier. Not ones that are necessarily genetically th that affect people genetically, but ones that are physiological or neurological, if you will, like depression, anxiety. Um, they could fix things like you know spinal injury issues as well as a lack of mobility in different limbs, they could fix chronic pain again and help you recover fast from uh, from strokes. But here's another one. Even if you've never been able to see, if you were born blind, they can they can fix that. Neuralink can stimulate neurons in your brain and fix that. And again, we're talking about something that's, you know, that we're, they're, they're, that's on the nanoscale, just like we talked about last week with nanotechnology. This is nanoscale stuff. They're measuring it in nanometers. Um, at least the threads, because they're so small uh, that they're able to be able to attach without causing any kind of rejection by the brain. If an object is small enough, which they kind of needle and thread it through the brain, it will not be rejected or fought off by the brain or, or cause any kind of blood uh, to be, for example, when you puncture something in your brain, you're thinking it will bleed. It doesn't do that because the threads are so tiny. Right. It doesn't cause any kind of injuries. If you play video two, it gives an example of how this technology also is put, how it's work, how it works, how they work it. The surgical robot does the thread insertion part of the surgery. This is because it would be very difficult to do manually. Imagine taking a hair from your head and trying to stick it into a jello covered by saran wrap 
and doing this at a precise depth and position and doing this 64 times within a reasonable amount of time. And a neurosurgeon would probably not like it very much if we asked them to do this for the surgery. So we have the robot that you saw doing its tiny dance. I sort of wanted to call it Tiny Dancer, but it's called R1. Yeah. Well, it's good that at least they're eliminating some level of human error when it comes to sticking threads in people's brains. Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, can you pull up image five? Because I have something I want to show people here, too. Image five shows you how big the actual device is that's going in your brain. The threads are extremely tiny. And yeah, to your point, Louis, it's they're The things are so tiny. It's not it's it's inconsequential, so to speak, to, at least in terms of a physical a rejection by your by your biology your brain's not going to reject it so it's really small the device is small the threads are even i mean even smaller again we're talking about nanoscale um and so it's not the, the the even though it seems invasive it's not as invasive as you might think and so i think this is going to be a pretty a pretty cool technology that has a lot of implications for fixing issues i want to know what your thoughts are before i move on because i'm really curious about how you see first this. thing that comes to my mind is how could this influence consciousness you know, like again, with yeah. consciousness, is it in the brain? Is it outside the brain? Do we access right. it? You know, if you take technologies like AI and Neuralink, what if you have some desire for this stuff to reach sentience? You know what I mean? And use human brains as a way to access that that plane that sort of all the info is stored right. in. So I looked at it. My first thoughts were not on a physio physical level or physiological level, but more what else is the brain? Because we all know that there's only so many bits of info that we are conscious of. Meanwhile, the brain is processing thousands of times more. So, you know, what is in that extra data? And could this somehow, you know, make sense of that? You know, because that's essentially what our reality is, is what our brain makes sense of and what information it's receiving. So my, my curiousness goes into what could you do with that, you know, good, good or bad. That's a perfect segue because... One the biggest reason why that that Elon Musk has been essentially you know speaking about this technology so so you know vehemently lately especially is because of AI, artificial intelligence and machine learning is essentially going to take over. It, Ray Kurzweil says even cognitive um, human abilities. We won't even need people to think right now. It's repetitive cognitive things. He talked about this before in his future predictions. Um, repetitive cognitive functions are going to be replaced by AI, but then there's non-repetitive ones like create, creative activities like art, if you will, um, and creativity. They're replacing almost every, they could replace almost anything that a human can do. So what is it, what is it that we're looking at here? So the human brain can send within itself messages within itself really fast. Um, right now it's, it's better than what a computer can 23 trillion times in a second. Uh, but the brain can, can do it. This is what a computer can do. The brain can do it 30 times faster than that. So computers are fast, but they're not as fast as the brain when it comes to sending signals. However, when it comes to decision making and actually getting things done, calculations and so forth, things that are real world applicable, well, it's a lot different. This is where things change. So the most powerful AI system can can do a lot of calculations super fast, like, like the human brain, even faster than the human brain. Yeah, like so quantum human, computers, I think, are at the level, if not breaching the level of beating a human brain and well and then they can and, and then with that they can also learn to go beyond that almost instantaneously which is where we hit that singularity point yeah. to where there ai could have super superhuman or super consciousness so to speak but the human brain can do about 10 quadrillion calculations in a second but the ai system can do 
hundred sextillion calculations in a second. That's literally it's ten million times faster than what we can do. So there, you know, our ability to be able to outdo AI, it's not going to happen. They're going to, it's always going to be better than us. But if we were to, if you will, integrate with take that technology, and make it an extension of ourself through Neuralink, that's Elon Musk's vision. It's to, it's not just to make some kind of transhumanist society. It's in order to give humans an ability to to be able to compete with AI, with the advent of AI. We don't want to become obsolete. We want to grow with our technology. And given that China is doing this stuff ethically or and unethically, by the way, they're they're making advances far beyond us because they're willing to take chances that the that America is not willing to. Yeah. We can't stop the advent of these technologies. We have to we have to push forward. We have to do it ethically, and we have to do it in a way that's competitive. Because again, our adversaries, or if you will, globally, uh, economically, our competitors. They're doing it, and they're doing it unethically. They're yeah. not concerned about the ethics of what and the implications of what they're doing. Um, so, and if people, if those for those of you who are wondering about the animals, by the way, they take very good care of their animals. I think Elon Musk said, you know, he said something really funny. They don't, they don't actually, they're not forced to do anything. A lot of people will deprive their animals of treats or food or even sleep to kind of force them into doing experiments because they have to hit a deadline and so forth. But they don't do that with these animals. Elon Musk has mentioned, and so the scientists, they mentioned that they they don't coerce them or manipulate them. They, this is only these things are done for extra snacks and extra treats. Right. Their basic needs are met. They're taken care of. Everybody, almost everybody on the team is an animal lover, as has been said by the scientists that work on this. So in terms of the ethics behind using animals to do this, they're improving the functions of these animals that have dysfunctions. And for those of them that are using these computer interfaces like the monkey, they're giving them a wonderful life. They're, they're very, very happy. Banana smoothies, for example, for the monkey. They're not mistreating these animals. I so, can go they for do banana the... smoothie. <laughs> right? Come on, man. Do um, I got to have a chip so... in my brain to get one? <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. So so basically, that's that's essentially how you would, you know, how you would, you'd see the ethical implications of that with the animals. People, you really don't have to worry about that. And, and again, his vision is for us to be able to have enhanced phys- enhanced cognitive abilities to be able to interface with technology to compete with AI, because eventually we're not going to be able to compete with them, you know? And, and, and again, he's not just thinking about the next decade. He's talking about the future of how we can exist, coexist with AI. So it's about evolving essentially, if you will, alongside of AI and Neuralink, in my opinion, could definitely be the thing to, to make that happen. What do you think, man? I think it's fascinating again, like anything it's, you know, the ethical limitations in North America other cultures and countries don't see that. So if you don't get in, you're now behind the ball and you don't have the ability to, you know, sort of see where the good and bad is and establish rules. It kind of just goes underground and people with yep. money will just go get it done somewhere else. Right. It's not a, it's not going to limit their ability to access this technology. And similar like CRISPR, this isn't coming in the future. This is right now. This is happening. Right it's already going on. We The hot potato has been tossed in your lap. We're going to have to deal with it one way or the other. And it's, uh, like I said you know earlier, all the easy stuff has been done. All the easy ethical questions we thought were difficult are nothing compared to the questions we're facing moving forward because these are technologies we not only we could not imagine, but now that they're here, we can't imagine the full application because they're so new and in their infancy, right? So, yeah, it's a scary thought, though, to believe that, you know, yeah. our offspring are going to need chips in their brains just to be able to compete against yeah. what we've done in the well, world of computers and AI. 
you know, it's but a little the, bit the cost, the cost is very low. So he mentioned that, you know, I think he said, you know, there, what is it? A $6 million, there's a $6 million man. There's a movie about the $6 million man or $6 million brain. Well, it's going to be the $60,000 brain. Um, so but what if you don't have it? What if you don't have it? You can't compete in the workforce because you haven't been enhanced. I, again, this is where I think the restructuring of society has to be implemented because there's no way that there would be an equal way, a way for people to equally implement this into society so that there's not a, a great disparity, an even bigger one than now. I mean, there's a class issue now in America, in the whole world, if you will. It would be even worse with this technology, this Neuralink technology, because it could be even worse. Because again, just like before we talked about CRISPR, is it only going to be available to those that can afford it? There's a lot of people that can't. There's an argument now that's being made by certain people. Um, ethically or not, that that we should prevent certain um, ethnicities from procreating because they statistically have a lower educational um, or, if you will, IQ level. Um, in, in the U.S. right now, there is a, I don't want to get too into it, but essentially there is a there is an argument about that. Should we prevent people to be uh, to be able to procreate because of their lack of cognitive abilities? Well, you could fix that if you could afford it. And so these things could be the great equalizer or they could be the thing that creates a greater divide. Yeah. You, you want to go to dystopian futures. Uh, Cyberpunk 2077 is a, is a pretty good example of what could be where people are scrounging around for you know, cybernetic parts in a transhumanistic futuristic society. Uh, but the most rich have everything they need and are obviously, again, the divide is going to be ridiculous. The slums will be, there will be only slums and the rich, nothing in between. Yeah. Yeah, it's already heading that way, too. I mean, there's already the haves and the have-nots, and they have access to the best health care. Most of us will never own a yacht. These people have multiples. So there's already that divide. I think we'd be ignorant to think that that's not going to continue to happen in the future. Whether yeah. we you know, start to realign society or not, there's only so much we can do. Although we do have numbers on our side. That's the only thing that keeps me positive <laughs> now. One yeah, day yeah. we can outrun these people and overrun them if we need it to, right? <laughs> if it comes down to a, we're going to wipe everybody out and only the elites are going to survive. Yeah. We become the zombies in the zombie movie and we'll be <laughs> chewing faces off before <laughs> oh, that happens, know. you know? I hope it never gets yeah. to that, but you know, it's, um, it's like the, the medication, you know? Yeah. If you can, you can save a life if you can afford it. Well, what if you can't if afford you can, it? Well, yeah. oh, well, you know, like there's no compassion for those there's no um i don't know there's no it seems like it's profit driven yes the scientists are saying we're doing this because we want to help people but then the companies that own the patents for this just see the dollar signs and uh i don't know i mean tylenol makes money and, and aspirin makes money by selling billions of bottles if you got a one-shot treatment you're never going to have a return customer i understand that yeah. But it's almost like these development companies, pharmaceutical companies, they expect us to believe that it's only worth doing the research and companies will only do it if they can make extravagant profits. Well, what is fair and reasonable profit for a vial of something you could extract from a plant in nature? Is that really worth a million dollars? Especially in a day and age where people can barely pay their bills. Like who has a million dollars? You're making it an elite thing and there's no law preventing it right now, you know? During COVID, people were selling hand sanitizer for $100 a bottle. They were getting ticketed <laughs> oh and fined because that's price yeah. gouging. Well, how is this not? You know, and the roots of these companies, the fingers run deep. You know, they have a lot of people on their payroll. And again, they're the ones wielding the laboratories and the money to back this stuff. So they basically say, well, if we can't charge this for it, we're not doing it. 
So the medicine won't even come to market then. So it kind of puts everybody on the back foot, right? You're now reactive, not proactive. Yeah, I mean, again, it, it makes me think of the 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 Zyke or the Venus project. You know, a lot of people, I've talked about this a lot before. Um, the Venus project is essentially a way of redesigning society at the cultural level, at the, the value system level, at the base level, um, in order for us to kind of divert from di diverge from this capitalistic or hyper capitalistic society now where everything is profitable. It's a, it's very competitive, but it's hyper competitive. It's not like, Hey, two companies are competing to see who could do the best. It's two companies are competing, whether ethically or again, ethically or not to see who can destroy the other company. Yeah. Not, not like make the world better, but wipe out any other competition possible. Yeah. That's not healthy competition, but ultimately that's the nature of our civilization. And that uh, the epitome of success in our society today is is that of the destruction of all other competition. It's to wipe out your opponent, make sure they can never be able to recover from whatever you know onslaught you have. It, obviously, we're talking about economically and, and corporately, and not like literally. But ultimately, that's the, that's the nature of our civilization. Again, I think that ultimately the only way to to have to see this future, the way that we can envision it, the way that I envision it. The only way is to redesign society. We can't have the society we have today. There's no way. We'll never make it to the type one civilization as a part of the Kardashev scale or even even just a better civilization than we have today. We'll, it'll, never, it'll always be like we're competing against other nations in, in a very not conducive way to the to the you know continuity of human civilization as a whole. Yeah. We're yeah, going to we destroy ourselves. And grow up a little bit. <laughs> Otherwise, it's like a baby with a loaded gun, right? We're playing with stuff that we don't have the yeah. sort of spiritual maturity to, to yeah, deal no. with, right? You or need cognitive, if you will. Forget yeah. spirit, cognitive. There's people like it seems dumb. It seems you know obvious. In I mean, if you talk to people one on one, everybody recognizes the problem and they they see the solution. But for some reason, when we think about it as a whole. That's where people start to lose themselves. They lose the core, the fundamental principles of life itself. And that is that of, of cohesive symbiotic relationship, again, with ourselves and everything else. We don't we don't have that when, when we think as a group. We, we have that when we think as a, on a one on one basis. When you're talking to a person individually, recognize that. Um, unfortunately, for some reason, us as humans, we lose that sense of intelligence when we're in a group. <laughs> yeah, it's true. it's true. I mean, you take a bunch of teenage boys, uh, one by himself, he's probably not going to get into too much trouble, but you put 10 of them together all of a sudden, it's like Lord of the flies, right? They got pig. Oh, heads I was going to say, yeah. Oh my gosh. It was wild. You know, uh, wild. uncivilization, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, it breaks down all of a sudden, right? Yeah. It's wild. I, I, do, I don't want to lose, I don't want to lose sight of the, the benefits here though, of this technology, because like I came across this article that, you know, from the verge, I never, most of what I've learned, are from articles because articles are very in-depth, but I came across an article by The Verge, you know, that got me thinking about something and, and it mentions Neuralink's goal, which is to develop what they direct interface to the brain. It's gonna allow people to control devices and, and, and technology with their, with their thoughts instead of with your hands or even with your words. Right now, we just got an update on our computer, I did anyway, where they integrated AI into the system itself so you can control your applications with AI but you can do it with a keyboard and mouse. Well, we just saw, we just saw the monkey be able to control the keyboard and mouse with his, with his thoughts, the yeah. monkey. And given how fast our thoughts are, we can sync our tech, we, we could be able to, at, at least at some point in the future when this technology is fully developed, we could be able to think our way through our, interacting the, with technology and everything around us. 
there are so many applications, especially if you marry this with all the other technologies we talk about that we're talking, you know, you walk into a room and you just think the lights on and they turn on, they right. just turn on. You, you, you know, you, you have a, this chip in your brain and you have, you turn TV on, TV on with your thoughts, or you start your car with your thoughts, or you, you name it, you know, anything that you can imagine you can do. So think about that for a I second. I could think about workplace one day. You would show up. You'd have like the sort of the base plug-in or the USB stick in your head, so to speak. You'd go to work. You'd put on something similar to a VR helmet. Now all those additional cognitive features are unlocked. You work with your brain. You think. You see. Essentially, you're running the computer with just your thoughts. And at the end of the day, yeah. you take that off and you go home. And, yeah. you know, the anonymity remains with you. There's nothing infiltrating you. You can disconnect from that in an ethical way. That would be, uh, but again, when, when you got a chip in your brain, hackers are everywhere. What if somebody takes hold of that? What if somebody manipulates somebody else's thoughts using that? You know, like what so if, they where does the nefarious yeah. come into this? They talked about that. There are systems in place to try to prevent biohacking, if you will. Yeah. Um, my concern. Neuro hacking, I guess it would be, right? Neuro hacking, yeah. Yeah. My concern would be more along the lines of. You know, what about the, the battery issues? You know, I, I know that they've solved a lot of the battery issues, the thermal issues with batteries, and they're working on, you know, iterating their way past even more, which again, if you look at some of this technology and how they've iterated to fix the issues, it's the the speed with which they've done it is phenomenal. I don't even understand that. I get that they can do it eventually, but so fast within years, I don't know how they did it. They, they did it. I think they did a great job. I really commend them. Um, for the development of this technology and the and and how they've been able to solve these issues, what about weather conditions? You know, like what about if it's too cold? Yeah. And there's a chip in your brain. Keep in mind that chip is uh, it's it's got mechanical parts in it. Let's say that you're out in the cold for a bit too long, and you don't have a, a hat on or whatever. You're exposed to the elements. What happens then? What happens if you're in the heat? Yeah. And again, you have those mechanical parts in your brain. And you are now exposed to extreme heat, 90 degree weather. As, as the weather changes on this planet for whatever purpose, whatever reason, whether it be global warming, climate change, or just a natural way that, you know, natural climate change, the world's getting hotter. And so as, as it gets hotter, we're going to be exposed to more extreme conditions. And we have to ask ourselves, what are the implications of that? How are we factoring into that? There are no, there's no information about that as of right now, because again, that's not, I don't think that that's, um, we our skull protects us from the elements so i think that what they're at least from what it seems like to me they're assuming that our biology naturally will protect the technology from these external uh, factors that's my only that's my only thought about that i think it's almost like a pacemaker right it's a little box with two leads that run under your heart it's yeah. under the skin the heat and cooling of it is maintained by your body's natural heating and cooling system, right? You are yeah. the radiator for that thing. It never gets too hot or too cold. There is a battery last 10 to 15 years. My dad has one. So every five years he goes, they test it. They make sure that the, you know, the spark, so to speak, is as strong as it should be. And yeah. they check the battery life and it's mounted close enough to the skin that every 10 or 15 years, he has to go in for a procedure or they open it up and put a new battery and, Sometimes they replace the leads and that type of thing, but it's not that far off. Now we're talking about the heart versus the brain. Both have equally lethal consequences for getting it wrong. So, yeah. you know, this isn't news. Pacemaker's been around for decades. This is just the that's sort of the next natural evolution of that same technology. So I, I, I could see it where 
you know, you look at like certain procedures right now, they can even use lasers that only go so deep and so far. And that video you yeah. played where the lady was talking about, you know, you'd have to put a, a hair through cellophane wrap into jello at a precise depth and do it 60 times. You know, right. it's almost like we can we can do that, I think. You know, we're not we're not that far off. And uh again, it's yeah, the well, ethics come into this and Let's take a look at that third video because I think let's how is this put into your brain? How do they put it into your brain? There's a demonstration here in the third video that we have. And in fact, because we've never shown an end to end insertion of a robot in action, uh, we're going to do a live demo of the robot doing surgery in our brain proxy. So who wants to see some insertions? So here it is. That's our R1 robot with our patient alpha who is lying comfortably on the patient bed. Uh, this is what we call the targeting view. So what you're seeing is this is a picture of our uh, brain proxy. And the pink represents the cortical surface that we want to insert our electrodes into. And the black represents the vasculature that we want to avoid. And what you're seeing is these hash marks with numbers that represents where we intend to put each of our threads. So should we see some insertions? So this is another view real quick. Uh, on the left is the uh, view of the insertion area. And on the right, uh, what the robot's going to do is it's going to peel the array, uh, the threads, one by one from its silicon backing and insert it into the target's that we uh, predetermine in the targeting view. So, there you go. That's the first insertion. So, we're going to see a couple more insertions. The whole process of inserting uh, about 64 threads in our first product is going to be around 15 minutes uh, for this robot. So um, yeah, there's a second one that went in, and we're going to do a third one. There you go. And then that's going to go in the background, and we'll come back to it in the later part of the presentation. Yeah. So that, that's why, to me, that's, that's just wild. I mean, it's easy to put it in. Um, See how fast it stitches it? It's just like, boop, Just quick. Boop. Yeah, just quick. It has it's to like be. like acupuncture in your brain. And they have to be sharp, too. Those, those, uh, they have to be very, very tiny and very, very sharp so that they don't cause any kind of issues. Obviously, you don't want to shove the, a blunt object into the brain. And That's everybody's just, brain map, so blunt, to speak. Yeah. The, the curvature and the lobes is slightly different. So having that, I think it was this... Um, yeah, they showed like the threads with the the, the numbers of where they were yeah. going to go carefully to avoid any veins or vascular things that would cause bleeding. It's essentially yeah. going into the brain tissue itself, not not yeah. the blood vessels. Exactly, and 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 they wrap them. So so if you pull up the image four, yeah, th this is this is these are the threads. They are tiny. They can literally wrap around areas of your of your brain that are you see those little those little vascular type areas there. Yeah, that's where the, the neurological impulses are being they're being uh, transferred. So when they link them, these little these little threads there, they have these little dots. There are points there. I think there's 16 of them, I believe, yeah. on each thread. And they are what help transmit that information from neuron to thread to the computer. It's 
it's insane. Um, and again, they're 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 trying to address the ethical issues. I'm sorry, the safety issues right now, like the battery, um, like the hacking, the biohacking that people are talking that you mentioned uh, before. They're addressing them. They're still they're still researching on those issues, how to fix them. But keep in mind, this has been FDA approved. <laughs> Wildly enough, this is FDA approved for human trials. What about a head injury? What if you're like a soccer player and you take a ball in the head and it hits your module? tears out half of your strands or like what uh, it's these are issues first of all you got Neuralink you should be, playing, you should be no headers on the soccer field with a Neuralink chip you might want, you might want to calm down you know, like, what if you're in a car accident or like you know there it would be crazy to yeah. say that nothing is going to bump your head I hit my head on cabinets and doors I'm a klutz around the house I would be ripping that thing out the first week I had it unintentionally I just know myself yeah I mean it's it's even even more important like our brain has you know, about 86 billion neurons in them. Yeah. You know, they, they capture signals at, at so fast. It's not, it's not even funny. And the question is what happens if there is even one thing wrong in, in where the, where the implant is, if there's an electrical, I don't know, impulse or um, anything like that. If there's a, if let's say that there's an EMP wave. Yeah. They, yeah. That, again, this is a hypothetical possibility. Like 5G cellular on. networks, radio waves. I mean, this stuff is around us all the time. We don't see well, it. They talked about that. They didn't mention that, by the way. They said that we're we're bombarded by. So the scientist that's working on this, the surgeon, he did an interview um, on a on a on a YouTube channel about this. And he said that we're being bombarded by signals, by RMF signals or whatever, all the time, 24 seven, constantly bombarded Wi-Fi, Bluetooth. Um, you know, 4G, 5G signals all the time, and yet our we we trust that our our genetics can just autocorrect, right? We can fix the damage that they cause at any given moment. The same thing would be what they're hoping, and as they're they're demonstrating this on these animals, by the way, but they're hoping that our genetics can essentially be able to mitigate the damage, just like we mitigate the damage from the waves that we have today, the Wi-Fi, the the um the Bluetooth and the uh the 4g and 5g signals we're already yeah. doing it now we're already mitigating that right now all the time so that's kind of their their take on that for now and again this is technology that's that's ready for human trials right but it's not ready to be mass mass implemented so let's not get ahead of ourselves and I mean, i'm sure future iterations are smaller more efficient maybe at some point it goes under the skull so there is nothing protruding maybe you know we produce yeah. electricity just as a living right. organism maybe they can put it on that same kind of 1.6 gigahertz the schumann residence where it runs on the residents of the planet and all living things maybe there won't be a need for a power supply thereby eliminating the the temperature controlled issues yeah. you know the yeah. first version of a hybrid car didn't go very well and now there's hybrids all over the place and they're pretty reliable. So anything or in its the, infancy is not the final product. hundred percent. And there's, there are depictions of this being shown in sci-fi all the time. And I mentioned sci-fi all the time. There's, yeah, you know, there's this, there's like a, you could stick, for example, a, uh, what looks like an, uh, uh, just a sticker right on the side of your temple or both your temples and be able to, to interact with technology that way. That's a far, we're talking very far into the future because we can't at the moment, we don't have the, the battery technology, the, the, you know, or anything like that, if you will, to be able to transmit on the surface level, neurological activity, or to be able to, to detect neuro neurological activity that way on the surface of the skin, but eventually we might be able to. Um, and so these are, this is just, a, I guess you will, an iterative technology before we get to the point where we can do things that are not as invasive as Neuralink. And yeah. by the way, they say Neuralink, according to the surgeon is less 
um, of a risk than some of the current invasive procedures for, you know, for brain surgery right now. Yeah. yeah. So I don't, I mean, I, I don't, again, I don't think it's ready yet, but the implications are vast and the brain is plastic, if you will. And when I say plastic, I don't mean literally in case you don't know what plasticity is. It's, it's malleable. It changes. It's, it's like when, you know, you get a new phone, but, but it adapts to all and you adapt to learning its features. Or for example, if something that molds, you know, the brain is, is moldable, if you will, but not physically, not literally neurologically, you can change and learn throughout your entire life. Yeah. Yeah. So habits are formed and, and broken just through those uh, synapses of neurons chatting. You can rewire your brain literally. That's why, you know, the the famous quote, when you change the way you, or you look at things, the things you look at change. Well, literally, yeah. your reality becomes slightly different because you rewired that that perception of things. Yeah. and Your brain makes sense of it in a whole new way. Well, hence the hence the the idea of affirmations, meditation, prayer, whatever. The idea is to combat those uh, those thoughts, you know, the internal dialogue that's constantly telling you something. Keep in mind, a lot of people think that, you you know, you are your thoughts. Um, you are. The problem is your thoughts are not always yours. Right. Um, your subconscious mind is, you mentioned this earlier, taking in so much information, you couldn't possibly be able to process it and be sane. So your brain has a filtering process. The problem is that so your, when your subconscious mind takes these things in, it becomes a part of who you are and how you you see the world. So for example, what you expose yourself to eventually becomes a part of your worldview. And even though you don't think it does, you don't have a choice. It just does become that. Yeah. So if you're saying bad things about yourself, you think that, oh, this is just how I feel. But actually it's, it's an accumulation, if you will, or accumulation of a bunch of experiences and things that you've been stimulated with from your environment, whether it be through TV, through entertainment, through the family that you have and friends you keep, that is what the internal dialogue comes from. You are trying to combat that. You're the one that's fighting against those thoughts. Imagine if you have that Neuralink technology that could help you do even that on top of being able to stop depression, anxiety, or to, to, to you know, change these things in a person. They could also, for example, make a constant affirmation, 365 affirmation. You could control, literally control, what you think and feel and how you see the world 24-7. It could be re it could be making your world for you. It's pretty cool, but it yeah, could also again there are also your depression, right? If you could get somebody out of that negative rumination, that loop of catastrophizing right. and like the world, the sky is falling and doom and gloom. If you can get out of that loop, you can essentially form new patterns, and it becomes easier as you start forming those new patterns. Right? It's neurological. It's neurological. Exactly. Yeah, neurons, man. So yeah, hundred percent. So this is this is what I have, and again, I. I feel like for myself, I like to look at the implications. I do want to talk about the technology. The te technology is phenomenal, but most importantly is what, what, what could this mean? I feel like when it comes to, you know, Neuralink, it is very, very new, um, especially the, the talk about Neuralink, what, what it's like one or two years now, has it, it's, it's been talked about for the most part in the public. And when it comes to the implementation, it has been implemented in rapidly. Um, but again, it's all it's all been animal trials for the time being, and they do it ethically, 100% ethically. So there's no concerns there. And, and the implications are, I think, are profound. I think they're profound. Wow. Awesome. I mean, amazing topics. We always try to find topics that somehow blend together while being entirely different, still have some type of flow. And that's the beauty and the fun of doing this type of show. I mean, we're researching topics we find fascinating. We're trying to break them down so they're not 
at a crazy high level where you need to be a PhD to understand it. We are not PhDs and no. we can break it down. But again, this is not new and emerging. This is here and now. And I think everybody needs to have a, a very, at least a basic over, uh, overview and understanding of what this stuff's all about, because it is affecting life currently and it will only continue to do so in the future. Our offspring, their offspring, this is going to be normal for them. You know, my two-year-old can use an iPhone and do all these amazing features that we never yeah. show her, but monkey yeah. see, monkey do, right? They learn right. very quick. Her brain wired, you know, being that blank canvas, they learn things so quickly. So, I mean, if you showed my daughter a, a plug-in phone in 10 years from now, she would be like, what is that? Why is there a wire? What, how do you <laughs> yeah, I, I can imagine, yeah. It would be so foreign, but yet, you know, the, the crazy stuff that we think is like, wow, it's so futuristic. That's just going to be normal for them. That's going to well, be like the cell phone that we're all used to. Yeah. Also, the idea that of charging phones right now. Right now, it takes a couple hours to charge a phone. But honestly, in the future, that that's going to be a thing of the past. Also, uh, not just charging it wirelessly and fast, but they will be able to last for days at a yeah. time. Yeah. Um, what used to be that, you, you know, a flip phone could last for a week. Well, right now, smartphones, because of how much power they're using, how much processing power they're using, graphical user interface, stuff like that. They, they, they are just draining the crap. I mean, six hours is, is about the max you get out of an average phone, cell phone, a modern cell phone today. You could get potentially with like graphite and so, or graphene days of, yeah. of um, battery charging. So this is going to be, I mean, we're looking at, a, the future is, is amazing. And we're going to be talking about a lot more technologies that are going to be, you know, they're going to be world changing, all of them, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. That is the purpose of Quantum Ladder Podcast. We uh, we thank everybody for joining us and supporting us. You guys are awesome. We've got some guests that we're in the process of booking right now. We're going to have some really insightful people, interesting people. We're going to do a couple of live shows as well. So lots of cool stuff in the making right now. And uh, we're going to try to do one of these shows every week for you guys. And if you like this show, give us a thumbs up. And if you haven't already subscribed to our channel, please do so. And uh, head on over to our YouTube channel. Leave us some comments show suggestions, guest ideas. Did you like it? Did you not like it? Tell us why. We always want to improve. And uh, again, if any of these clips by chance uh, got removed from the YouTube platform, Spotify will have the entire video and uh, so will the UnX network. And we are on the UnX network every Sunday night at 8 p.m. Uh, Pacific time, 11 p.m. Eastern. And uh, we'll be in the chat room as well. If you guys want to join us, watch one of our shows and uh, ask questions. We'll, uh, it's not a live show, but we're there. So it's it's live enough because we're, we'll yep. be there uh, on, on the day of. So that's 8 p.m. Pacific, 11 Eastern, every Sunday. And uh, I guess that's all we got for now. Any closing thoughts, Marquis? No, my only closing thought is the same, is similar to the one that I had in the previous show. And that is with all these technologies, with great power comes great responsibility. And um, the future looks bright if we are able to synergize with our technology in nature. Absolutely. Well said. And uh, with that, we're going to bring today's episode to a close. We thank you again for joining us. We uh, look forward to hearing from you. Give us your comments and feedback. And we really want to see you on the next episode of Quantum Ladder Podcast. But for now, on behalf of my co-host, Marquise Williams and myself, thank you for joining us. And bye for now.